The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So let's just turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to pick up chapter 7. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Father in heaven, um, it is a joy to be with your people gather together in your presence, and God, we, I do feel a special sense of your love tonight, um, who, you who have drawn us out of darkness, Lord, you've led us to repentance, um, and you've been, you've been good to us, God. I pray that you would give us your spirit now as we look at your word, that we would see your mercy and delight in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I don't know if you, I'm sure if you guys are aware of this, but I love fantasy stories. I love uh, sci-fi and fantasy. I, uh, if you've been around me long enough, you know that I love Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and Narnia. Um, I mean, I'm cool with Star Wars and all that stuff, but those other ones kind of speak to me a little bit more. And one of the things that I find uh, fascinating about them, because it's not just like in books, it's in movies too. You have like Batman and Superman and... Star Wars and all those things. Um, one of the things that's really cool about those stories, or, or that we all tend to love about them, is that uh, you have good versus evil, and there's always this climactic moment. There's the battle scene, right? You get used to the characters, you see who they are, you kind of feel invested in what's going down, and then they come up to the battle scene, and uh, everybody starts punching, right? Or lightsabers start going, or whatever. It's it's the it's the scene that we all kind of look forward to, right? It's um. It's kind of the climactic moment of good versus evil in these stories. And uh, in the book of Exodus, we've been getting introduced to the characters. We've been getting introduced to who Moses is. It's kind of the big, kind of the main, main person. Been getting introduced to Israel. They're kind of like us, you know, lots of need and they need a lot of help. Getting introduced to Egypt and Pharaoh. And then, of course, the central character of the book of Exodus, who've been introduced to God himself. And now we're coming up to the part of the story where the battle begins. The scene's been laid. Everybody's standing up to the battle line. You know, you imagine everybody's up on the line. They got their swords and shields out, and things are about to go down. And so that's where we are at in the story. We are picking up in chapter seven, and what we're going to do is we're actually looking at the plagues. We're looking at the ten plagues of uh, of Egypt, and. Um, Here's my promise. We're not going to go through the plagues one by one. <laughs> as, as somebody commented uh, recently, to read the plagues is to experience the plagues, right? It's just, it's just a bit long. And I trust that you can read it in your own time, but we are going to be looking at the plagues. And as we're looking at the plagues, I think what we are beginning to see is um, this battle scene unfolding, right? This is the D-Day of the book of Exodus. This is where God invades Egypt. This is where God shows up. He is invading Egypt through the plagues. And when we look at a war, we always want to ask, what kind of war is this, right? Is this an all-out war? Is this a guerrilla war? Well, we, I think what we're beginning to see in this book is that it is a merciful, it's a merciful God, and it's his merciful judgment, and it's his merciful war with them. And I think we see kind of in the, in chapter eight, verse 19, Get a little bit of a, I think, a bit of a theme for us here. Um, we have 
God's finger pressing in, and verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 19 says, then this is during all the plagues, so I'm kind of dropping in the middle of the story to pull out a phrase for us. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen as the Lord had said. Right? We see in the plague, this is God's finger coming down and going to battle with Egypt. Interestingly, it's just God's finger showing up. It's not God's hand. It is not uh, God flexing. This is God's finger showing up. He is pressing in on them. He is pressing on them in, in war. He is pressing on Egypt in this story. And I think what we're going to see as we look through this, he's pressing on our hearts. This is God, God's finger coming down and pressing on our hearts through the plague as we begin to look at them and understand what God's doing. And as we're looking at them together, I think we're going to be seeing that God's merciful judgment leads us to repentance. His, his finger upon our hearts, his merciful judgment pressing down upon us leads us to repentance. And so as we are looking at this together, I think instead of doing each of the plagues, <laughs> we're going to look all of them, we're not going to look at all of them at once. We're going to start with the first eight and we're just going to pick up a few themes through the first eight together. So we're just going to look at God's merciful sovereignty, God's merciful war, and God's merciful patience. You guys cool with that? All right. Yes, no. John's, John's speaking for us. We're going to st- pick up, we're going to look through this, and I want to start out by, again, we're going to kind of be looking at these sideways, looking at God's merciful sovereignty. We're going to start out with that, because this is one of the major themes of the plagues. When you're looking through the plagues, um, this, this part of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his heart, that's a major part of the story. Like in every plague, what happens is God says, I'm going to harden your heart. And then the plague happens, and then Pharaoh hardens his heart. And what that brings up is this whole idea of God's sovereignty. What that means is God's God's rule. What does that mean for God to rule over all things? And what does it mean to rule over a specific people? So we're seeing this. There's all these verses here, but I've just kind of picked out a few of them that kind of help us pick this up. Starting in chapter 4, And the Lord said to Moses, this is chapter 4, verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your, in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Right? So this whole thing starts out with God saying, I'm sending you on a, on a battle plan and I'm going to show up and invade. But here's how it's going to go down. I know exactly what's going to happen. And it's not only going to happen because I know it beforehand. It's actually going to happen because I say it's going to happen. So I will harden his heart. And then chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So it's not saying, uh, it's not using hardness language, but you see that his, his heart is hard to the Lord. He's stiff-arming God. Chapter 7, verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And then chapter 8, verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, so in the middle of the plagues, there's happening and then there's relenting, there's, they're happening and relenting, they're happening and relenting. And one of these relenting moments, Pharaoh says, oh, okay, I'm not going to let God have one over on me. So God says, I'm going to harden his heart. And then Pharaoh, he hardens his heart and will not listen to God. Chapter 8, verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 
And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then the most important verse, I think, in this whole set, chapter 9, verse 16, for this purpose I have raised, he's talking to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So we have this, this issue going on, right? It's called we have God's sovereignty and we have man's responsibility. This is, a, this is one of those things that kind of comes up a lot when you're talking about um, how do we understand a God who's in control and yet how am I not a robot, right? That's one of the, the objections to things. How, how is God absolutely in control and how is God, uh, how am I not just this dev- little robot under God's, uh, under God's rule? I think what's helpful to remember in this context, God is telling a story to make his name known. He is, the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, he is sweeping through to save his people to, as we saw in chapter 9, verse 16, make his name known. He's going to make his name known, and everything and everybody without condition is going to display the name of the Lord. It's going to make God look great. It's going to show who God is and that he is the one that has infinite power and love and grace and mercy, and he is the one that's calling the shots. God is the one that's in control. And so when we're talking about Pharaoh's heart, we're talking about what that means for the Bible. It's not just kind of like his uh, muscle, right? We're not talking about like his, uh, you ever seen the shirts that have like the, like the medical diagram? I'm not talking about that. <laughs> we're talking about what you would call the inner spiritual center of one's relationship to God. The inner person as we relate to God. That's what we are talking about when we're saying his heart was hardened, which means his heart was not tender to God. It was not responding. But, but God's the one who said, you won't respond to me. So this, this, becomes, this becomes a bit of a difficult issue to understand. This is a hard, this is a hard truth. That what's, what's happening here is that God is, God is the one saying, your heart, Pharaoh, it's going to be hardened. And then Pharaoh's heart responds to God in hardening. But Pharaoh is still accountable for that. Right? Are you guys picking up? This is a, these are hard things that kind of fit together. So when we look at this, we, God is saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and then Pharaoh's heart is hardened. What that means is that behind the self-hardening, <coughs> excuse me, and Pharaoh's heart being hardened is the planned and plan and purpose of God. God's purpose is under and controlling what's happening in Pharaoh's heart. Yeah, could I get a bottle of water? It'd be helpful. Or just some water in a cup. I don't care. Or water from a fountain. <laughs> a bucket, yeah. <laughs> so what we're seeing, though, is that this stuff is happening in terms of hardening. This stuff is happening with, before anything happens in the story, right? God is saying, I'm going to do this because this is the way I am. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to allow Pharaoh... To have any say in this, Pharaoh's not going to have any contribution to this. I'm absolutely in control. Because God could have, um, God could have written this story where Pharaoh um, responded to the plagues, and like they got to plague two, and Pharaoh was like, okay, yeah, you guys can go. But God, God wanted this to happen because he wanted his name to be seen for who he is and how good he is. That God is writing the story so that, most importantly, his name is being known, right? And so we have chapter 9, verse 16. 
chapter 9, verse 16. Oh, sorry. Wrong. Chapter 9, verse 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up. There we go. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That is why God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. That is why what we call election, God's sovereignty, it is to show God's name for who he is. God will not be on the hook for anybody for his glory. He will not share his glory with anybody. He will not share his mercy, the reason why he has mercy in anybody with anybody. He is the one calling the shots. And I, I recognize that this, this is one of those kind of de- mis- main mysteries of the Bible. It is hard. How do we understand God to be both merciful and kind to us and yet he's the one absolutely in control. What am I responsible for? These are two truths that the Bible puts together. And I think at the heart of them, there's a few things that we should learn from this. This story of how the plagues develop, see Pharaoh's hardening. We also see God's intentional mercy, right? Over the, over the course of the plagues, his people are intentionally picked out and protected from several of the plagues, like seven of them. The plagues develop, and God is, they've they've done nothing to deserve God's mercy. But God said, I'm going to be merciful, and even though you guys don't believe me, my hand of mercy is going to cover over you. And it's because God is equally deciding to harden Pharaoh's heart and to be merciful to his people. So how is this, what are the things that we can learn from this? I think there's five things we can learn from this issue of God's merciful sovereignty First and foremost, we can't save ourselves. We are just like Pharaoh. Our hearts are, so to speak, we're born with a clenched fist of a heart. We come out as cute as our little babies are, and we love them. Nobody has to teach my children to disobey. Nobody has to teach my children to not love me, um, to go on a vacation, and provide this wonderful vacation and the moment we get back saying, I hate you. <laughs> Nobody has to teach us to reject God. Nobody has to teach us that. We're born with a clenched fist towards God. We see Pharaoh, he's kind of like, who's the Lord? <laughs> we are just like them, right? We are like Pharaoh. We cannot save ourselves. We, we can't do anything. And God is writing a story, right? Last time we looked at how God is writing the story so that he won't let Pharaoh have any say in Israel's deliverance. He won't let us have any say in our deliverance. He won't let us, he doesn't see anything in us that he responds to. He responds to us out of his own overflowing love and generosity. It is one of those mind-boggling things. It's like, why does God love me? Why, when we're singing about the love of God tonight, why does God love us? Because, <laughs> not you, because of God. It's this crazy truth in the Bible that I think should begin to ground our hearts, not, not in anxiety, right? It's not just supposed to lead us to like, well, does God really love me or not? That's not the, that's not the purpose of this. Because the second thing we think we learn from this is that mercy is intentional, right? If you're here tonight, if you know Jesus, if you're responding to the gospel, if you know Christ, if you love Jesus, that does not just kind of like happen, It happens because God specifically targets you and he says, mercy, 
mercy and love upon you, specifically you. I will have you to be my people. I will have you to be in my children. I will have you to be one of mine. God is not ambivalent in kind of how he kind of like distributes mercy, right? He's not like, um, you know, with weddings, you have the flower petals that are kind of thrown out before the bride, kind of generally. God doesn't just kind of throw out mercy to us, just kind of like generally, like, oh, you bunch of wrecks of people, you need a little bit of some mercy here or there. No, no, God comes specifically, and he says, I will have mercy on you in specific ways. I will give you my mercy, not because you deserve it, but because it's the kind of God that I am. I'm sovereign, and I'm good, and I will target whoever I want. So that, I think the third thing we learn from God's sovereignty, his merciful sovereignty, is that he wants us to be satisfied in God alone. So that in the darkness of the night, in the questions about, does God love me or not? Our hope in God does not rest upon remembering the date and time of our sinner's prayer. Right? There's, we, don't, we don't look back to videotapes of our sinner's prayer to have confidence that God loves us. We actually look to Jesus because he loves broken, needy, mercy needing people like us. And his promise is, if you're broken and needy and a wreck, you're in luck. I'm a merciful God. That's the type of people that I have mercy on. And if you're needing it, if you're sensing your need of it, that means that he's already given it to you. So your, your ability to see it is God's mercy to you. Your desire for it is God's mercy to you. It is so that you would rest in God alone, so that you have, you have nothing to share with God and getting God. God will give you God on his own terms so that you get God and rest in God and have him for your own and rest in him completely, not anything that you contribute to the story. You get God, you rest in him, and you rest in his sovereign goodness. I think a fourth thing we see here is that it is still a mystery. I can't explain all the details of this. If you want some resources, I'd love to give those to you. There's some good books on this. But this is still a mystery, right? I'm not going to resolve it for us. I'm not going to say it's not hard and it's not difficult. But if we don't have a God that can contradict us, then I I don't know if we have God. God is going to cause us to have this struggle because he's not like us. He's different from us. A fifth thing here is that it's okay to disagree on this. You can be a member here, you can be a part of this church, and not agree with how we would formulate this part of the Bible. That's okay. We're we're not going to beat each other over the head with our doctrines. Our doctrines are clothes that we wear to serve each other. I would love to talk about this more with you if you're struggling with it and you want to learn more, because it is we've kind of swept through it and you could dig down into this more deeply. But I'd love to talk about this more with you if you have any struggles with it. What we're going to do is we're going to pick up another theme in this story, right? So we are seeing, we are looking at God's merciful judgment that leads us to repentance. And the second theme we see in these plagues is God's merciful war. So, sorry. I'm not sure why something is. We have a, I have a plague in my throat. Um, so here's what I want to do. I just want to do an overview of the plagues. One thing that's going on in the plagues, so you have 10 of them. Do I have a chart? Yes. So we have a, t- I have a plague of them. All right, we have, we have 10 of them. 
plagues. And um, it starts with the Nile, turning the blood. It's the first plague. Frogs coming out of the Nile, mosquitoes, dust in the air. We have flies, livestock, skin ulcers, hail, locusts, darkness, and the firstborn. So we're just looking at the first eight of those. But those are the ten plagues. And one of the things that's going on in the plagues, so first off, we see that there's a lot, uh, they progressively get harder, right? The Nile, um, and there's a lot of ways that we could kind of understand the plagues. Some people will look at them and see kind of, um, you might have seen this on like the History Channel or Discovery or something like that. There's a way of looking at them and seeing kind of like natural disasters kind of like piling up on top of each other. Um, They're presented as miracles, and so I kind of take them at face value as being miracles, but however you you understand them, you you have a a progressive, uh, they're progressively... Uh, painful, right? So you have the Nile turning to blood. It doesn't, it, it's a, an extraordinary event, but then it's kind of like, um, it doesn't seem to cause a lot of loss. But then you have uh, frogs and mosquitoes and flies, which are just like annoying. Like, it's just like gross, you know? Like, it just doesn't make life easy. And you have economic loss. So you have the uh, livestock, skin ulcers, hail, locusts, progressively destroying their entire economy, right? Like, you think the recession was bad. Like, this stuff is, like, decimated. Everything's gone. And then you have the progression into death. You have the darkness noon in the middle of the day for three days. And then you have the death of the firstborn. So we're just going to be looking at the first eight. But one of the things that's going on in the plagues as well is... Um, do I have another, another chart up here? Let's see. One of the things that's going on is that in the in the, in the uh, in the plagues... Um, there's actually this huge pantheon of gods in the book of Exodus, or in, in, in the Egyptian kind of religion, right? They have like 80 gods. And one of the ways of reading the plagues is uh, that the plagues are actually specific judgments against gods, the different gods of Egypt, right? They're, they're specifically targeted at the different gods of Egypt, and they are targeted at specific functions in a way they, they, they function for the religious life. And so what happens in the plagues is... Um, in general or in specifics, they are undermining or showing that the gods of Egypt have no power, right? So one of the things that you see with them, um, the, 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 with the Nile, with the Nile being turned to blood, Hopi, who was the uh, god of the floodwaters of Egypt, um, is shown to have no power in giving life to the people of God, or to the, to the, to the Egyptians. Uh, the frogs... Uh, was actually targeted or potentially targeted at Hecate, a god of uh, childbirth and uh, fertility. Uh, and so here, all these frogs showing up, showing like, oh, this god can be mocked by can't can't control these frogs, these frog frogs coming out all over the place, mosquitoes and flies. Right. So one of the gods was actually uh, described as being a fly beetle. Um, and so it's again showing that this God, right, it can't control anything, right? There's no, this God doesn't have any control over anything. Uh, livestock was under these three gods, Apis, Ptah, and Hathor. Um, and that God, that, that, the, that the God of the Israelites is more powerful than this God because um, he can't protect the livestock, right? God just strikes down all these livestocks. Uh, skin ulcers, right, again, there's another God related to that. Going down the list, you can see how there's all these gods who are um, kind of personifications of all these different aspects of human life. They've put their trust in to protect them, to help them. And all these plagues, in one way or another, are, are judgment against these gods saying, 
They're a bunch of false idols, will get you nothing, will do nothing for you, they will not help you in any way. And I think connecting the heart stuff that we were talking about before and these gods, I think they're put together in a way because at the heart of it is that these gods are an expression of the heart. These gods are an expression of the human desire to trust in our own little constructions of the universe so that we can have our little help and hope from these little gods that help us understand and function in the world. Now, I know that in one way that sounds kind of like, oh, that's old pagan stuff, right? <laughs> have all these little gods. We don't have gods today. We're modern people. But I think that the, this story is written to drive us to connect. These idols are actually idols of the heart, you might say. They're heart, they're, they, the birth and generation, where these idols come from, these little gods that are judged by the plagues, their orientation and their rooting is in our hearts. And so what God is doing is he is coming after our idols, right? So their idols uh, were not that much different than ours, right? Uh, there's standard three, money, sex, and power, right? Economics undermined, right? Their ability to control fertility undermined. Their ability uh, to have control over um, their society is undermined, right? I mean, you turn on the news, you know, money, sex, and power are the three idols that we love. We love in America, right? Another, there's other idols that we love to, to go after. We love comfort. We love, uh, we don't like to be inconvenienced, right? We don't like, uh, we don't like the inconvenience of either uh, loud neighbors or serving each other. Uh, another idol that we love uh, to worship at is science. I love, I mean, we, my boys and I, we, we love to go through astronomy magazines. So like, I'm not saying, oh, science is the devil. But uh, we go to science as the explanation of life. There's a podcast I listen to where it's, uh, it's, you know, all these problems, all these problems, and we're going to solve it with, literally, they have, ah, science. You know? <laughs> it's like, there's being out front about loving science. Science is the explanation and root of all of our hopes and dreams. Another, another idol that we can easily have, uh, this tends to flourish in evangelical churches, is family. We love to orient our lives around cultivating this, this family and don't interrupt us and don't, don't get in the way of our family time. Another one is health. We, we love, I mean, this is on the TV all the time, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that you watch the Super Bowl only for the commercials, but watch the Super Bowl and watch for the commercials and see what, what gods of the culture are being exposed there. Tell me you won't see something about how you can have health forever in one of the commercials. We, we, love, our, we love our little gods and we love our little idols because they, they are where we go for our comfort and source of happiness. They, 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 uh, we love to protect them. And what God is doing in the plagues is he is coming after those things. He is exposing them as being false gods that will never help us, that will never give us hope, that will never protect us. Our hearts, somebody once gave me this little image, some, our hearts are um, kind of like in, in other religions, they have these uh, little shrines in their homes where they kind of usually like over the mantle, mantelpiece in the living room. They have the little gods. 
And our hearts are like that. Our hearts are like, imagine your heart is the mantle place in your living room of your heart. And all your little gods are right over. And what God does in his sovereignty, right? We just talked about his sovereignty. In his sovereignty, it's the circumstances of our lives. He kind of comes up to the mantle place and he knocks one over. And our lives, we we all frantic, putting it back together to get it back up there. Now, I know that sounds a bit ethereal. Here's how this plays out. I have historically struggled when I get stiffed on a meeting. Somebody doesn't show up for a meeting, I get really frustrated. I don't get frustrated at you, I promise. But I get frustrated. What I would have, what I would see in the past is I would begin to get frustrated. Somebody wouldn't show up for a meeting. It's supposed to meet at seven o'clock, and it's seven forty-five. They don't like me. They don't love me. What's wrong with them? Why don't they know how to manage their time? Aren't they stupid? This is stupid. Why am I wasting my time? Why am I even friends with them? Why am I even here? I'm beginning to get frustrated and angry and judging them and suspicious about their motives. Right? I. I begin to defend, I'm important. They've offended this little idol in my heart. They, they've offended, that God has come along and knocked that idol off. They've offended it. Because now I'm having to kind of figure out why, why have they not bowed down and worship at this idol of myself? My self-love, my self-law, right? I'm better than they are, judging them. That is an idol See what I'm saying? That's an idol of, I love myself. And this person not showing up to a meeting, right? We're talking about like an hour of time in my life. This person not showing up to this meeting is exposing. I have put my hope in being affirmed and loved and honored with this person coming and showing up. And if they had showed up, it would have stroked my ego and I just would have felt so, my, I, my little God of self-love would have been affirmed and happy for the day. But then not showing up, God showing up in the scene, behind the scenes in his sovereignty and exposing, Jacob, you love yourself, you hate your brother, and you're demanding that they worship your little God. It is a little microcosm of overseeing in the plagues. And the plagues, God is exposing. You cannot trust in false gods. They will always let you down. They will always disappoint you. Right? Just to put this on, when have your worries ever given you life? When have, has your anger ever given you life? When has your bitterness ever given you life? Right? That's what God is after in the plagues. These things that you experience and get angry about and fret over or are bitter about, fueling them and worshiping at those idols will never give you life. Coming to the Lord trusting in God, he gives life, right? In the plagues, one of the things we see in the plagues is that he protects his people. When you come to the Lord in the, in the midst of all the judgment around you, of all the things not going the way you want, all the things not happening the way you want them to, God protects his people. He gives you himself. He comes, one of the points of the book of Exodus is that God comes down and dwells with you. Because in, in the plagues, we are seeing that God is judging our idols. So Brittany read for us Psalm 135 earlier, which actually cites the book of Exodus here, right? Psalm 135. 
the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Right, where the hands just do what the heart wants. The idols of the nations are coming out of the heart. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. Your idols, the things that you desire, they will never tell you who God is or declare mercy and love to you. They have eyes, but they do not see. They will never tell you what to do with your life. Your worries and your anxieties will never give you guidance. I mean, they might give you some sort of great anxious pinings in the middle of the night, but they won't assure you of the future. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. They are dead. And in the plagues, God is showing us that they are dead. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Right? That's why the plagues progress from bad to death. Because ultimately, worshiping our idols, worshiping the things of our hearts, leads to death. They will destroy you. Your idols have no good for you. The things of your life that do not give you God, they will take you down to the grave and you will die with them. You will become, if you obsess over these things, you will not just get angry, you will become an angry person and be destroyed by your anger. You will become a lusting person who's destroyed by objectifying people. You will become somebody that is bitter and rotten deep down. That is what our idols do. But you see, what God is doing is he is exposing these idols as having no life for us, these things that we desire. But ultimately, the place of God's judgment rests on Jesus. When Jesus dies in our place on the cross, he is exposing, right? In one sense, he is like the anti-hero that we all, we all want a hero that is beautiful, wise, and handsome, and desirable, somebody that will be great looking on a poster and just spew wisdom for us forever, and little Hallmark cards for us. But Jesus comes as a visually unimpressive man, a blue-collar guy. He he was never a CEO. He was a blue-collar guy, dusty feet, who came and lived in our place, lived perfectly before God, and then went under the darkness of God's judgment so that we could be protected in the light of God's mercy, so that all the idols of our hearts that would take us to the grave Jesus actually goes to the grave for us so that we could then live in the mercy of God. That is where Jesus takes us in the gospel because we would die with our idols, but Jesus died under the wrath and judgment of God like these plagues. Jesus ultimately does the judgment for us so that we can live in God's mercy. We're going to actually, we're going to pause on that in terms of the plagues. We're going to look at plague nine and 10 next week. If you want to see how these specifically point to the gospel, we're going to be looking at the darkness of the plagues and the death of the firstborn. That is the gospel. The, pl- the plagues move us towards the gospel. And so I'm just going to say that's a flyer for next week because we are, we're going to be looking at that next week. But here's what I'm not saying. Just as we're, I want to move us to the last point, but what I'm not saying 
is that the difficulties in your life are all the difficulties in your life are God killing your idols, but they're not God um, damning you because of our struggles, right? Because in Jesus, we have ten thousand problems, <laughs> but we only know two of them, three of them maybe. The difficulties in your life are not a one-to-one correlation, right? So what I'm not saying is that if you're having trouble, it's because there's an idol in your life and God's smacking it out of you. I don't know. God laid his wrath upon Jesus so that we now follow behind our shepherd. And yeah, he corrects us. But we grow in love and the life of his face. So this... So you hear what I'm saying, right? Hear the qualifications? Does that make sense? You can shake your head no, and I can talk about it more. Okay. Making sure we're all on the same page. All right. Last point, I just want to pick up on God's merciful patience. One of the things that's going on in the plagues, right? We've talked about how the plagues develop, and they get harder and harder and harder over time. They get more difficult and more challenging and more painful. But in the midst of them... What I just want to lift up for us out of chapter 9, verse 20. So this is in the midst of the seventh plague, right? The hail is about to come down and destroy everything, right? In the midst of the seventh plague, Moses goes out and says, look, if you uh, want to follow God and be covered by his mercy, you'll take everything in the barn. And then verse 20, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into their houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left the slaves, left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Now what I find fascinating is in the midst of all of this, all these difficult things are going on. It would seem to me that some of the Egyptians are picking up on what's going down and they're changing allegiance. They are no longer on Pharaoh's side, but they are effectively saying, you know what? I've seen enough got the message, I'm with God. I'm with the people of Israel. And so they, they, so you see, they're, they're actually like, you have a division now happening between Pharaoh's people, of those who are with Pharaoh, and then those who are Egyptians and are with God's people. And I think what we're seeing here is a bit of a hint of some conversions that are happening in, in the Egyptians. I think that some of them are responding and trusting in God, right? So just like we were looking at the plagues, they progressively get harder. The sin of our lives will continually drag us into the grave. They will continually drag us into death. We will continually be hardened under the effects of sin. But in God's mercy, he allows us the time and space to respond to him. He does not allow us to, effect, to, to experience the full weight of God's judgment upon us for our sins. Right? We don't just uh, sin and drop down dead. Because we should, but we don't. Because God's merciful to us. He's patient with us. But his patience has a purpose, right? I don't know if this is on your mind, but Romans 2, 4. Do you not know that the kindness and forbearance and patience of God is meant to lead you to repentance? The patience of God in the plagues, progressively more difficult. We see here, some people respond. God's patience in your life. You are alive today because God is having patience with you to respond to him and grow in Christ. That is the purpose of why you're alive today, to respond to God 
and trust in Christ. That's the purpose. You were, he, is, he has not allowed you to experience the full weight of your sin. Because if you were to experience the full weight of your sin, you would be dead today. But you are not, as far as I can tell. You are still alive, and we are, we are being given patience to be able to respond to God, to, to trust in him, to repent and know him, right? He is slow to bring the full effects of our sin in our lives so that we can respond and know him and trust him. We can respond to him and know the goodness of God because what's going to happen in the plagues, right, is ultimately the people are going to be freed and go live in the presence of God. God is patient with you so that you can live in his presence with him to know him. Jesus says in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. There is no judgment in Christ. Christ has received all the judgment that you deserve. And so that in the patience of God, you respond and repent and believe in Jesus. So that just like the plagues pass over Egypt or pass over the people of God and they land on Egypt in Christ, God's judgment passes over you. His patience has led you to Christ. So you can live in Jesus The length of time in your life, the length of time is God's patience with a purpose to lead us to Christ so that we can know him and live in him, to live with him, right? This is a difficult part of scripture, but its purpose is to expose us so we begin to feel a little uncomfortable in God's presence, not because God is going to swat us, but because God is leading us to repentance and faith in Christ. So what are the idols, what are the gods that you need to repent of? Whether you are in Christ and you're seeing, I'm trusting in comfort. I'm trusting in my family. I, I can relate a little bit too strongly to Jacob's illustration about being angry, about being stiffed at a meeting. I need to repent of my anger, like me. What idols is God destroying to lead you to Repentance to life in Christ. Because repentance, you see what happens in the end of the story, repentance, they get God. Right? God will not share his glory with anybody else. Right? Verse 9, 16. What is it? So that you would know that God has declared his name and that he will be known and treasured in your heart. That he will be known as the only God that you need. The only God that will give you life, the only God that will save you and deliver you, God has pressed his finger down on them. I hope he is pressing his finger down on our hearts so that we get more of God because God will come by his finger and open up our hearts so that we can cling to him and get more of God. And we do that, his finger comes down so that we can cling to Christ through repentance. Repentance gives us God. God's merciful judgment in this story leads us to repentance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for how you have given us Christ. Thank you, God, that your merciful judgment is not abrasive, God. Christ bore the abrasion of judgment so that we would know the sweetness of your mercy. Would you help us to know your goodness to us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, 
proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.